0: I'm Daniel Levine, and this is Rarecast. The Yaya Foundation recently achieved a milestone in advancing towards treatments for 4-H leukodystrophy, when it successfully developed a mouse model. It reflects a broader effort that has allowed the organization to drive towards the development of a gene therapy to treat the rare neurodevelopmental condition. We spoke to Ron Garber, co-founder and board president of the IAF Foundation, about 4-H leukodystrophy, how the organization built a research agenda, and the rapid progress it's made. Ron, thanks for joining us.
1: Danny, thanks so much for having me. I I love your podcast, and and I'm really excited to to join you.
0: Thanks. We're going to talk about 4-H leukodystrophy, the Yaya Foundation, and a recent milestone it achieved with the development of a mouse model for the condition. Perhaps we can start with the condition itself. What is 4-H leukodystrophy?
1: Yeah, 4-H leukodystrophy, or or r 3 related leukodystrophy, as it's also known, is a a disease of of myelin in in the brain and, and in our neurological system, and it's a you know genetic neurological disease um, that's autorecessive, so we inherit it via our parents. If our parents are a carrier of a genetic difference that that leads to it, we have a one in four chance of of being affected by the disease. and it it effectively means that for people who are affected. They don't develop myelin properly during a critical phase of development um, and and that leads to all sorts of different problems which are different for different people because it's a really heterogeneous disease um, uh, you know hi- highly variable phenotypically and and that's that can be confusing to to our patient community and it was confusing to, to my family at first because everyone who was affected by the disease sort of presents differently but um, but it's you know at its essence people who are affected sort of develop regularly at first, and then at some critical point in time in typical for age, sort of around two or so years of age, we, we start to develop, you know, symptoms and, and that starts usually with motor issues and, and muscle tone issues and sort of just problems with mobility. Generally, um, there's, there's often abnormal tooth development. So, so our patients, you know, don't develop teeth at all or develop them late. And often when, when teeth do come in, they're they're sort of shaped differently. Um, later in life, there are endocrine symptoms. So our, our kids have delayed puberty or sometimes no puberty at all. And, and, and then ultimately kind of respiratory and feeding issues, um, you know, and, and all of that sort of declines over time, slowly in the case of, of normal 4-H, um, rapidly in the case of my daughter's condition and, and other patients like her. And and sometimes we're learning really, really slowly um, for, for people who are affected by the disease and, and live well for, for a long time, but then have sort of motor issues show up later in life. Um, so, so, you know, very different for different people, but that's sort of 4-H leukodystrophy in a nutshell.
0: You were thrust into the world of rare diseases when your daughter, Yaya, was diagnosed with 4-H leukodystrophy when she was just eight months old. She died at 13 months. How did she come to get diagnosed, and what were you told about the condition when she was diagnosed?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a great question um, because eight months and 13 months, that it doesn't seem like a, a long time. Um, but it's a, it's a lifetime literally. And, uh, and it, it certainly felt like a lifetime then. And, uh, so I, I'd love to just talk about Yaya for, for just a moment. Uh, you know, just as a person, she, she was our, our first born. Uh, she was a lovely little kid. Um, you know, when we, when we came home from the hospital, we were sort of just, you know, tired, uh, happy new parents didn't know that anything's wrong. And, and, um, and Yaya was just a really special kid. She was loving, sweet. Um, she loved being kissed on the cheek. You would kiss her on the cheek sort of rhythmically and, and she would kind of act like she didn't like it and look away um, and play hard to get. But then if you didn't do it on the rhythm, she'd look back like, hey, where are you? Come kiss me again. Um, she loved being held. She loved her friends uh, and she was tough. She was strong. She faced a lot of challenges that I'll, I'll talk about more in a second and, and, and really was up to them. Um, you know, she, we would play or do physical therapy, and she tried so hard to lift her head up, to stand with support, to sit, um, to look at different things, all these things that we, that we take for granted, but that were for her really, really hard. And, um, and she was just a, an amazing person, and, and I miss her and um and i'm really I'm really grateful for her and and you know what what she is and what she was in in my life and my wife June's life um you know the, as far as her diagnosis and our kind of journey to get there and what we were told when she was diagnosed um you know when I, I said we came home from the hospital and everything was normal around six weeks after she was born, June and I started to to become concerned. She wasn't smiling and, um, you know, usually you smile between four to eight weeks or so. And, and um, you know, we started talk to, pr- talking to like primary care physician, our first primary care physician at that time around, around our concern. And, you know, I think like a lot of parents in our disease community and others, you know, initially like the primary care physician wasn't really interested, didn't share our level of concern. Um, uh, probably thought you know just a couple of overly concerned new parents, but but I think beyond the smile, June and I each kind of developed independently concerns um, about you know hey, yeah, it seems like different and and struggling a little, and um, and and we, we there was a sort of the the beginning of the diagnostic odyssey was just us sort of raising our hand or kicking and screaming and saying hey, listen to us, we, we think there's a problem here and, and we need to do something about it. And I remember our physician at the time saying something like, you know, I'm 90% not worried. <laughs> and, and, um, you know, imagine, imagine, you know, t- to her, like, you know, 90% to, to, to parents, uh, 10% is is a big number. Uh, and so we really drove like, Hey, can we see a neurologist? Can we see an ophthalmologist? Because we she had some eyesight issues. Um, and and okay, fine, you know, and, and so that would that kind of led us into the next phase of being followed by neurology and a brain MRI that showed up normal and some genetic testing, um, not not sequencing, but kind of microarray testing uh that, that came back normal. Uh and, and we had sort of between two months and eight months, you know, just her her slide really starting and she was having problems with tummy time and normal developmental stuff and started to develop, to develop feeding issues and, you know, us not being able to do anything about it because we didn't know what was wrong. And when she was about six months old, we, we asked, can we see a gastrointestinal doctor, a GI? And, and I didn't even know what that was, but my dad said like, Hey, you guys should see a GI. And, um, and so we asked our primary care physician, said, so sure, you know, why not? And we got a swallow sc- study scheduled. It took like three weeks to get a swallow st- study scheduled because we just couldn't get on the calendar. I think I called three times to get to get it rescheduled and pulled forward. And um, and and she failed that swallow study. And we you know what we thought was. Uh, uh, you know, in and out checkup to became a three week hospitalization um, and, and you know, surgery to have a feeding tube and, you know, some, some scary stuff while we were in the hospital. That unlocked the availability of exome sequencing for us. And so, you know, we get, like insurance wouldn't pay for it before then, and this was seven years ago. So I, I, I hope and, and believe that exome sequencing is more accessible now to people like I and people, families like ours. Um, when, she, when that exome sequencing came back, you know, her genetic differences were were identified. And, and you know, I'll never forget the day we met with our geneticist and, and told us Yaya was affected by 4-H. He gave us two scientific journal articles, um, you know, that we had to try to read on what was then, you know, the, the hardest day of, of our lives and kind of figure out. But at that time, they didn't really, he didn't really tell us what to expect. I mean, we were in in that Appointment. I remember talking about, you know, what we should do once she reaches sort of the age of puberty, and we need to think about um, um, initiating puberty via medication, and sort of like a long time horizon. Um, and and when we read those journal articles again and again and again, trying to sort of learn about the condition, what we saw was, you know, the the. the the cases in the journal articles presented later, like eighteen to twenty-four months, Yaya was presenting at six weeks or even sooner, even before then, and it didn't make sense to us. Um, we ultimately connected with the person who who wrote the article that we were reading. Like we found her, and and saw her, and she ha- she helped us make sense of the condition and helped us refine our expectations that Yaya's case was really severe. Um, that we should start thinking about things like palliative care, and and that really helped us. That that diagnosis and and being able to refine it and understand what Yaya's case looked like helped us, you know, make sense of it and and make good decisions for her, good care decisions. Um, that you know, I think made the most of her life and our our life together.
0: How did you go from? The experience with her diagnosis and, and her death to create the Yaya Foundation.
1: When, when when Yaya died, when Yaya died, there was a huge hole. Um, sorry, Dan.
0: give me just second here.
1: When Yaya died, there, there was a huge hole in in um, in our lives. You know, like literally, there there was a huge hole. We spent so much of our time and energy and care and love, you know, just just taking care of her. By the time she died, uh, her care had just become really involved, and and we spent so much time um, it, it, every day, you know, m- making food for the the feeding tube and and uh, physical therapy and music therapy and, and just all these things. So there, there was a huge hole, um, but but really spiritually there was a big hole to, um, you know, I, we wanted to continue to be her parents. Um, we wanted to continue to give her life meaning. And, and most of all, we just, we didn't want to accept that that this was like a thing that could happen to kids like Yaya and, and to other parents. Um, but before Yaya was diagnosed, n- neither Jane nor I knew of anything about rare disease. You know, probably didn't even know that rare disease was, was like a thing, you know, a, a sort of ca- a category in, in the healthcare world. And, you know, we had always thought that, you know, you get, you 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 figure out what the the condition is and and then you know there's a there's a medicine or or something you can do about it and maybe that that's overly simplistic but but we certainly thought that when Yaya, when we got to a diagnosis there'd be something we could do to help her and certainly that we'd understand what the condition was and what to expect and what we could do to you know mitigate the effects um that wasn't the case for us, and and we wanted to to change that for other people like Yaya and other and other parents like us. So, for for a year or two, we, you know, we were sort of struggling to just move forward with our lives in general and, and grieving Yaya, um, but thinking about you know what can we do, what can we do to help other people like her, and and um, and ultimately uh, we learned of a of a matching grant opportunity just for for any nonprofit contribution. And we thought, you know, Oh, this is, this is, you know, the, the sort of trigger what we need. And I think it had a, like a one month sunset on it. So that was really the catalyst for us to, Hey, let's, let's raise a little money. We'll get this match. And we can sort of leverage that to, you know, start bringing other people in and start talking to scientists. So, so we did that. We found a friend to help us get 501 C3, Tax status, and um, and we we you know learned about that as we did it and sent it into the IRS, got tax status back, and 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 we also in parallel reached out to like two other families that we had found online uh, that were doing a little bit of fundraising themselves, a, a family that that was running a golf tournament and a family that had done a dinner fundraiser, and said, hey, you know we've raised a little bit of money. I think if we put our heads together, you know, the the sum will be greater than the whole of of its parts, and maybe we can attract, you know, the attention of uh, of some larger funding sources and, and get some stuff done together. And they were in, and and uh, we were kind of off to the races after that.
0: The foundation's mission in part is to accelerate and support research that will lead to the development of a therapy and cure for patients. As part of this, you established the 4H. Lucas collaboration network. What was the vision for that?
1: Yeah, the the vision. So when when we started, we had no idea what to do. And and another parent who um, who had had done some similar work who we were introduced to said, "Hey, why don't you just send out a request for proposal to a couple of labs, and you can see what comes back, and you can fund you know, something. You can fund the work that you like." And and so that said, so, hey, let's do that. And uh, so we sent out an RFP to the three academic labs that we knew were doing work in 4-H um, in, in Montreal and Amsterdam and in Philadelphia. And two of those labs sent proposals back. And those proposals were, were really confusing to us. Um, basically, one assumed answers to the questions that the second was was trying to, that the second was trying to answer. And so we were like, wait a second, do do we need to know the answers that the, the do we need to know the answers to the questions in the second proposal before we fund the first? Or does someone already know the answers to the proposal in the second, to the questions in the second proposal and we should just fund the first and, and not waste time. And uh, so we had no idea what to do, which which proposal to fund. And we started calling people and and that's, I, that's when I got in touch with a, a rare disease venture capitalist named Walt uh, at Third Rock ventures who I had spoken to when when Yaya was alive and and when I was trying to you know find something anything that would help her and and I asked him kind of what should what should we do here and and he said, "You guys need a strategy uh you shouldn't just be funding one off proposals you need a strategy, and you should talk to." I think he said thirty people. You should talk to thirty people, and you should come up with a strategy regarding how you're going to attack this. And so we did. By by that time, I'd gotten together a kind of a board of directors for the IA Foundation, and we started talking to other patient leaders, other parents, venture capitalists, um, some some pharma biotech drug developers, and. We learned of work that the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network was doing around collaborative research networks. And we're really inspired by that um, because it was it was a sort of a, a strategic approach to leveraging, you know, unique contributions that patient communities can make to bring researchers together and get them working together and to sort of find the right work to support, to do together with the limited resources that we have and then and, and to work together to get it done and share data. And so we started, so we started doing that. Um, we, we, um, and we'll talk about CZI in a second, so I don't wanna get ahead of ourselves, but, but we, we started talking to all the researchers we could find on PubMed and had conversations with them over a summer and, you know, basically found out all the work that everyone was doing and wanted to do and called a meeting, got everyone together, and, and over two days discussed all of it together. And um, and coming out of that, we were able to to kind of come up with a research strategy as a patient community that um, that we're still working today to advance and, and support and, and achieve.
0: Well, walk me through that. How did you go about setting a research agenda? As- Someone who didn't know what a rare disease was just months before.
1: Yeah, so so the the you know a, a huge catalyst of our work was was the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative Rare as One program, Danny, and and just as we were thinking, just as we learned about the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network, and like oh that's what we should do. Well, that you know that's much more uh, effective as an approach than than just the kind of fun one-off stuff. And, and we started, we started, uh, you know, just me, basically, it was just, it was me and kind of our board and, and June started identifying people and trying to set up calls with people and plan an agenda for a meeting. And when we were really deep into that work stream, and then CZI put this request for um, application out for patient organizations, just like ours, that were trying to start a collaborative research network. And And we submitted an application and And we're selected as a cycle one grantee and and that gave us some resources. And, And so the first thing we did was engage a geneticist who's our science and research director to this day, Valerie, to work with me to have, you know, who knows nothing about me, who knows nothing about sort of science or research or drug development to talk to everyone that was doing work and, 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 you know, do what I was talking about just a second ago and kind of identify the skill sets that were not represented among that group of people to invite, to connect with that group of people who knew the disease, disease to kind of crowdsource ideas. So Valerie and I spent the summer talking to people. We had that meeting. In parallel, we set up a kind of informal scientific advisory board. And, and Walt was on that together with a uh, a clinician researcher and another um, biotech venture capitalist, Tom, and they sat in on the meeting with us and we, we set up the meeting. So disease experts spent the first portion of the meeting talking about the disease. Then everyone that was doing work in the disease talked about the work they were doing. And then a few key therapeutic uh, experts in a few key therapeutic modalities that we thought could be helpful in our disease, so cell therapy, gene therapy, um, uh, a small molecule talked about work they were doing. and then we spent some time like just debating whats you know what's all the stuff we would do if we could if we had the resources and And parents and patients were there too and and coming out of the meeting, the scientific advisory board. The Yaya Foundation team and a couple of parents sort of worked through the output of that meeting together and and kind of you know messily put together sort of different buckets of of work to advance like you know okay natural history data is a key need for our organization gene therapy cell therapy small molecule are all therapeutic modalities that are interesting and. Gene therapy seems to be the furthest, furthest along and this, you know, and sort of has the, the project specific projects identified that can move the ball forward. Um, tool development is, it was another one. Like we need tools and, and models that would support uh, discovery. And So we, we kind of came out of that meeting with some, with some sort of like swim lanes that we wanted to advance with some projects in the swim lanes. And, you know, we had kind of, a a finite number of resources and and just debated as a group, you know, where to, where to put those resources towards projects that we identified in that, in that strategy.
0: You mentioned CZI. This is the Chan Zuckerberg initiatives, where is one program you're referring to, this has provided not only funding, but also really giving you guidance and, and help shape what you're doing. What, what do you say you've you've been able to get from that program
1: so so pre czi it was the i foundation was mostly me late at night after a long day of work and putting uh, my you know my two or two living children to bed and and you know sending out emails to researchers and trying to move the ball forward czi brought funding to help you know, build out that team uh, to, to support that work so that we could, you know, have people working during the daytime too and, and, uh, and, and, and expertise that, that I didn't bring. But more than that, it brought capacity building and networking to the work we were doing. So, you know, we were part of a network of 30 other awesome – or 29 other awesome patient organizations. We learned from what they were doing. That informed our research strategy. Um, and it informed, like, how do we, how do we conduct the the scientific meeting that I talked about where we, where we tried to set that research agenda. And we, we had 29 other patient organizations to to kind of kick ideas off of and experts from the outside, like uh, Cordoma Foundation, who had just done a, a scientific meeting, you know, just like the one we were trying to do, who, and Josh, who leads that organization, came and presented to our group and we could ask them questions and. Uh, and, and sort of learn from the work he had already done, uh, and, and not have to kind of reinvent the wheel. Um, it, it gave us like nuts and bolts resources. So, you know, sure we all need to be experts in, in data collection and drug discovery and so forth, but like, we also need to, you know, know how to run a business. Uh, a nonprofit business, but still a business. We we need to learn how to raise money and have a stakeholder management system and a board of directors and, you know, all the sort of blocking and tackling and less exciting stuff, but fundamental stuff that comes with with running a, a patient advocacy organization. And Andra Stratton, huge shout out to Andra, um, like leads capacity building for the Rare as One Network. And, and just connected us with so many resources and so much learning that helped us do that more effectively. And so between some funding and a team and all those resources, it, it just upped our organiz- organizational capacity so much. Uh, and, and I am so grateful. And, and now a year later, we're a year out of the program and and we're still just, I think, operating at such a high level. So it's really validation for what that network was designed to accomplish that you know we, we came out of that three-year cycle operating at, at such a higher level than, than we went into it.
0: The Yaya Foundation was also an early participant in the RareX data platform. How did the organization come to recognize the importance of gathering patient data and the ability of patients to control access to their own data?
1: Yeah, so coming out of that, out of that scientific meeting, I mentioned one of the needs that we identified was natural history data. And, you know, a a common way and and a good way, frankly, a way that we're still focused on uh, of collecting natural history data is working with an academic institution to conduct a natural history study in which, you know, typically an academic lab will will follow patients and gather data and, and, you know, hold on to that data. Um, You know, that's, that's expensive. it it ends up often with data being siloed in a particular institution and not being accessible broadly across you know a big community of people around the world who can help, and um, and it and it often uh, leads to patients sort of giving away data and and not controlling who has access to it beyond that lab. And and by the way, all that is is important. And and like I said, we're working with three institutions now to advance a natural history study just like that. It's important, um, but it's 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 probably not enough. And, and so what we loved about Rarex was. You know, it, it's a it's a low cost or for us at the time, a no cost way for us to gather critical data. Um, we don't have to become data collection experts ourselves that data collection is is very complicated. And we're trying to do lots of things. And there are 7,000 plus rare diseases and hopefully 7,000 plus rare disease organizations. And it is inefficient for our broader rare disease community for each of us to have to develop deep data collection expertise on our own. And so we just felt like we found an expert. We found someone who could who could help us achieve our goals really efficiently? And then the like cherry on top was our patients control who that data is shared with. Is they control if it's if it's even shared with us as a patient organization? But they have the option. We have the option to share that data with scientists, researchers, drug developers all over the world, uh, beyond just our sort of. 4H community as it exists today, and that was that was really appealing to us because our patient community wanted that data to be available to anyone that could help us, and uh, and so coming out of that meeting, that was one of the the bets we made was putting resources behind working with Rarex to to uh, launch a Rarex data collection program.
0: One of the things you also have been able to do is connect with. Genevieve Bernard at the Research Institute of the McGill University Health Centre. How did you make that connection and build that relationship?
1: Yeah, so when when Yaya was diagnosed, I mentioned that we got those journal articles. Um, Genevieve had had written one of them, and so the when when Yaya was diagnosed, the first thing I did was, or one of the first things I did was call a, a friend of mine who who had been. You know, just to support through Yaya's life to that point and who was a doctor and was helping us, you know, get smart and make decisions. And we sent the journal articles to him and I, I think he had Skyped with Genevieve by the next morning. Um, you know, he's that kind of friend and she's she, she cares that much about about our patient community. And so, so she was the person that we went to see um, about a week or so after Yaya was diagnosed and you know, shared really hard news with us, um, but in a, in a very kind and caring and compassionate and constructive way that, uh, that like I said, helped us make good decisions for Yaya. Um, so that's how we initially connected with her. And we, we stayed in touch with her as we launched the Yaya Foundation. And, and she also helped us connect with other researchers and clinicians and scientists um, that she was working with or that she wanted to work with or bring into our community. And, um, and, and she's been, you know, she and Nicole Wolf in Amsterdam and Adeline van der Veren, uh, Laura Adang at CHOP and Ian Willis uh, at, at, in, in New York have, have just been, and Florian Eichler and, and at Harvard, have, have been like great um, partners for us as we, as we try to build out our research community and, and move the ball forward.
0: Bernard's lab at McGill recently achieved a milestone by creating the first animal model for four H leukodystrophy. What's the significance of this? Why does it matter?
1: Yeah, it it matters because it gives us a couple of things. One, we can we can study a a disease model is so important. We can study it to learn about the disease. Like we don't know very much at all about why four H shows up the way it does. Why is there abnormal tooth development, for example? Like what, what is happening? What is the pathway that's leading to that symptom? Um, an animal model allows us to, to study the disease and learn about the pathophysiology and, and identify targets for therapeutics. You know, if we, if we know more about what the disease does, we can, we can target it with, with some drugs. Um, and then it, it also gives us a tool to develop and test therapies. And so, you know, that mouse was, was completed. It's being published now in Brain. It was completed um, a, a little while ago. And, and already since the completion of that, of that mouse, we're working on testing a gene therapy treatment by delivering a gene therapy to, to the, the affected mice and, and, you know, trying to refine that therapy and see if it it changes um, it changes outcomes for for the mice, and so um, we can do that not only with gene therapy but with small molecules, um, maybe with with ASOs. And so it's a really important tool that we think will move the ball forward really meaningfully in our in our quest to find a treatment and, and ultimately a cure for four eight.
0: As other patient organizations might want to take similar steps to advance research, can you? Give a sense of what it took to get to this point. How much time, money, effort went into developing an animal model, and, and what did that involve?
1: Yeah, I, I, it took a lot of time and and more money than than we wish for sure. And and I, I want to make sure I answer this question in a way that that isn't uh, scary <laughs> um, or, or like that doesn't feel prohibitive for a, for a. You know, like someone in the position we were in seven years ago. Um, You know, first of all, I'll just say in our case, it's a really complicated mouse because you know a a typical there there had been previous attempts to to try to develop a mouse model for 4H, and you know with the with the severe mutation, the, the 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 model didn't live and. With a normal mutation, it didn't present because mice has, have less myelin than people and so it was just it was hard to develop a a good model and this model is more complicated than the usual mouse model and so it it was expensive and a couple footfalls uh, went into it before before you know a successful attempt um, and and the reality is like look putting together a collaborative research network and and you know Having all those calls to sort of survey the landscape and bringing in partners to assess the the information and make good decisions about what we to prioritize um, is is time consuming, and um and it's it's taken you know it, it frankly like the mouse gene therapy project the first phase of that was a was a four hundred thousand dollar project you know that's That's not small money for, for our small patient communities. And, 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 you know, that's one case. And, and there are many things that we as patients and parents and advocates can do. And, and, you know, my answer to this question is just do something. We can all do something. We don't have to raise a million or $2 million, uh, you know, uh, the road to a cure is like a puzzle, I think, and and we all as patient communities can identify some puzzle pieces, you know, that, that fill out that puzzle. And, you know, even if we had, you know, just sent out that RFP and funded one of the proposals and done some kind of small scale fundraising coming out of that, that would have been great. It would have moved the ball forward for, for people in our disease community with a serious need. And so in our case, it took a lot of time and, and you know, uh, not a small amount of money and certainly a lot of effort from, from you know, our, our team. And it's just one way to do it. Um, but it's been, I, I will say that it, it's been really fulfilling and um, it's a, it's been a really good use of time and money and effort. And it's gonna help people, it's, it's enriched, my life and, and the lives of the people who've been a part of the effort. And, um, you know, and it's just, it's just one way to, to approach it.
0: You you mentioned uh, you are doing work on a gene therapy. Now who's involved in that work and where are you in that process?
1: Yeah. So, so one of the things we as patients can do is just bring people together. Even if, even if we're not, Bringing tons of effort or time or money in. and and this question is a great example of that you know um, Genevieve knows the the disease really well and had done some work with others on uh, model development like i said and um, and also is a great collaborator i think and and good at you know identifying where there are needs for for skill sets to be added and and then you know working to bring people in and so she and we. In that scientific meeting, invited Guangping Gao, who's the, the president of the American Society of Gene and Cell Therapy, and um, and works at the University of Massachusetts, to partner with her on on the next phase of that gene therapy project. And so they're now working together, and they've they've developed a, a capsid and and um, and have even you know are, are starting to deliver gene therapy to the to the model. Um, you know, we, it, I think it's hard to say no. It, they didn't, they wanted to say yes, they wanted to work together. But I think it's really hard to say no to uh, a patient or a parent. And so one of the things we can do is, you know, if if there's a skill set missing or a gap, I think we can work together with who's already at the table to identify, you know, the right person or people to to invite into, into the team. And I think it's, it's really hard for people to say no. To people like us. And that's that's great. We can, we can then sort of fill out the puzzle. And, and we were able to do that together with, with uh, Genevieve and Guangping and their teams to sort of couple a, a disease expert with a gene therapy expert. And, um, and that that's already moving forward. And, and we hope that partnership will be really fruitful.
0: I, I know people who've experienced the type of loss you have could, could just be paralyzed by it. And it's amazing to see not only how much you've accomplished since then for others but also the speed at which you've been able to do that you've managed to come a long way since the foundation was started just 5 years ago what advice would you offer younger patient organizations on what they can do to accelerate progress to treatments and and even cures
1: oh, well danny first I, I appreciate that question uh because it doesn't it doesn't feel like like a short time, it feels like a long time, um, five years and and so I appreciate your encouragement that you know that it looks like we've come a long way in in a short period of time. so so thank you. Um, you know, look, uh, paralysis and not knowing what to do um, are appropriate are appropriate states of emotion, I think, for people who um, are grieving a diagnosis or a loss. And, and so I think the first thing to recognize is that it's, it's okay to feel that way and, and to not know what to do and to not feel like you have the strength to, to do anything to, to help. And, and that's certainly how I felt um, seven years ago when, when Yaya died. And so, you know, th- my advice is just do something. Um, in In my case, I asked some friends who who I thought could help to to like hey help me out I, I just want to explore this will you sort of kick ideas around with me and you know just help me out and, and and I think I didn't say it, but I probably also meant like give me encouragement tell me tell me I'm doing a good job Um sort of su- support me emotionally at, at a hard time. And, and, and they did. And, you know, it, so that was an important step for me. Um, and, and beyond that, it's it's like, just do something. We're, we're all good at something. There are amazing parents and patient advocates who become scientific experts or, you know, or PhDs. Um, that's, that's not me um but but I think i 've been good at you know just effort and resilience and bringing people together um, we, we all have some people are good at raising money, some people are good at organizing a five k event or a golf tournament uh or or cold calling researchers. We all have something we can we can do, and my advice is just take the first step for for me that first step you know, turned into the RFP, which turned into, you know, this problem of which proposal we fund, which turned into the conversation with Walt about you need a strategy. And, and I think during all of those steps, I sort of gathered energy and felt an increased sense of purpose and, and meaning in, in my life and Aya's life. And that sort of energized me and gave me an outlet for the, the grief I was feeling at the time and turned into like this really big effort. I, I think, you know, five years ago, I, I would not. I would not have guessed I was just having a conversation with one of those friends about, and I said, you know, I, I don't think any of us ever expected us to be where we are now five years ago. And he was like, what are you talking about? I did. But, but I don't think I did. I don't think I did. And. And I think, you know, just doing something when you feel paralyzed, call a friend who's a lawyer to help you get 501c3 status or talk to another patient organization that's in a similar spot uh, to see if you can work together or learn from them. Just taking the first step, can you never know where it's going to lead, but it'll lead someplace good.
0: Ron Garber, co-founder and board president of the IA Foundation. Ron, thanks as always. Thank you, Dan.